Thanks for listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Before we jump into today's subject, a couple of items of unfinished business. You recall we uh, repeated a program from uh, 2014 on Daylight Saving Time. We ended uh, that uh, program with a couple of commentaries, which were also repeats from around that time from Emily Bergen and Friend Weller. We had this from Kathleen. She disagrees with Emily Bergen. She says it's as if redundancy and going to bed at one time is idealized, so Utah-like. Uniformity is so idealized here. In Utah, it's still 1950 here. Yes, I think so. This need for uniformity is scary. Thanks for the show, she says, and she concludes, Oh, it's hard to live in this standardized culture, but for the beauty of the land, I would be on the coasts. It's Kathleen. Thanks for emailing in. And uh, this uh, came to me directly, but I think uh, Dudley is, I hope you're okay, Dudley, with me uh, sharing part of this. very long, so I'll just share part of it. Uh, Dudley wrote in, she said, my pre- uh, this is responding to our program um, on legislation moving through the Utah legislature proposed by Senator Urquhart, which would abolish the death penalty in Utah. And uh, Dudley says, my perspective is quite different from Senator Urquhart's. And uh, he says, see Utah's death penalty costs within saving costs with the death penalty. The death penalty, uh, justice and saving more innocence is what it's about, says Dudley. The uh, death penalty has a foundation in justice. It spares more innocent lives. The majority populations of all countries likely support the death penalty for some crimes. Why? Justice. Anti-death penalty claims are either false or the pro-death penalty positions are stronger. Then he gives several links on saving more lives, fair and just death penalty is. The New Testament death penalty uh, support overwhelming, no quote-unquote botched execution, Arizona or Ohio. Anti-death penalty movement, anti-victim and uh, innocent frauds, standard anti-death penalty strategies, links for all of those. And then he gives uh, quotes, moral foundations for the death penalty from Immanuel Kant, Pope Pius XII, John Murray, Plato, William A. Pettit Jr., John Locke, uh, Pope Pius V, and John Jacques Rousseau, and uh, more, um, more links. Um, and he goes on to say that, uh, of course, death penalty deters a review of death and uh, murderers much prefer life over execution. And he gives a link for that, too. Thanks for that, Dudley. Keep those coming to upraxcess at gmail.com. Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. From the extra pounds and unrelenting bullies that left her eating lunch alone in a bathroom stall at school to the low self-esteem that left her both physically and emotionally vulnerable to abuse, Jasmine Singer's struggle with weight to find her life. Singer says that most people think there's no such thing as a fat vegan, but most people don't realize that deep-fried tofu tastes amazing, that Oreos are in fact vegan. So even after she embraced a vegan lifestyle, Having discovered her passion in advocating for the rights of animals, she defied any skinny vegan stereotypes by getting even heavier. More importantly, she realized that her compassion for animals did not extend her own body and that her own low self-esteem was affecting her health. She needed a change. She describes her memoir, which is titled Always Too Much and Never Enough, as the story of one woman's journey to find herself through juicing, veganism, and love. Later in the hour, we're going to be joined by uh, two representatives from Art Access in Salt Lake City. Jasmine Singer will be appearing at Art Access as a part of their body image product project. rather. Uh, but we welcome in now Jasmine Singer. Thanks for taking the time. Thank you so much. I'm excited to be here. And there's another event. This looks interesting. Uh, at Weller Bookworks on uh, March 12th. Uh, Jasmine Singer, you'll be uh, there with Josh Hanagarney, whose book is The World's Strongest Librarian. Uh, that'll be interesting. Uh, I've interviewed uh, Josh Hanagarney, very interesting uh, fellow. He uh, He's uh, battled his Tourette's with weightlifting. That's a very interesting story. Yeah, and he is gigantic. He's also mostly vegan at this point, so I'm really, really looking forward to that event, too. I'm looking forward to both events, and it will be my first time in Salt Lake City. Which I will be, I will be traveling there later today. And Weller Bookworks uh, describes this as a, perhaps some, I don't know, feats of strength will appear, and, and maybe some tap dancing. I think you're into tap dancing. I love tap dancing, and don't put it past me. I could break out into a time <laughs> step at any given moment. <laughs> That'll be very interesting. So that's on March 12, 7 p.m. at Weller Bookworks, and uh, the event at Art Access is March 11th, 5:30 p.m. at Art Access in uh, Salt Lake City. Um, I want to begin with, uh, you, you have a very interesting uh, passage on your website, uh, which, by the way, is jasminesinger.com. You talk about the word fat, 
and this is something I'm sure you've, well, I know you've thought a lot about. You were, you were heavy a lot of your life. Tell me about that, just the, the, and, the, and the stigma it carries. Yeah, of course, that carries quite a stigma. I definitely don't need to tell you or anybody else that, but for me, I like it. I like the word, and so I've decided to use it. I've actually always been uncomfortable with the word overweight because, to me, it seems like it's being compared to some type of normal, and it's on the other side of normal. And I know that oftentimes when people use it, it's because it's what we're used to saying. And uh, there are times when I'll even say it without even thinking about it. But in general, I, I like to use the word fat and maybe bring it back to bring bring that word back to normal. Uh, it's I don't know. It's uncomfortable to say, isn't it? And and in today's politically correct world, I don't you know. We're not sure if we're supposed to say it. There are a lot of things I say that are probably not considered politically correct, <laughs> but I, you know, you said it's uncomfortable to say, and for me, it's not uncomfortable to say it. There's other things I'd be happy to talk to you about that most people probably find uncomfortable to think about, but that is how we achieve social change. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but by, by I guess by it's it's one way of just facing up to to the issue. It's one way of facing up to the issue, and perhaps if we start to use these words, they won't be considered abnormal anymore, and they won't be considered less than. I was in a unique position because I did lose a lot of weight. I lost nearly 100 pounds, and I found myself in a position to have kind of jumped the fence from something that the world had previously decided was less than to something that the world had sort of arbitrarily celebrated, which is being a thinner person. And it wasn't until I lost that weight that I realized the way I had been treated before was way different than what I even knew was going on at the time. I I, I have to say it, it gave me a bit of a chip on my shoulder for a while. It was a little bit jarring. But ultimately, it became part of my activism, which is rooted in the idea that we are all individuals. And whether we're fat or thin or human or not human, <laughs> I'm, I'm an animal rights activist as well. Mm-hmm. So I'm not, when I say not human, I don't mean like aliens from outer space. Right. I mean oftentimes farmed animals as well. Mm-hmm. So it was, a, it was an interesting shift for me to get to that place and realize that men were holding doors for me and women were snapping their gum and complimenting my blazer. And there was just a different relationship that the world had with me, which surprised me. I wasn't expecting that. Let's jump to that. I'll circle back to uh, to your childhood and, and other experiences and your animal rights activism. Um, so you say that you, you lost the weight and then you, you finally felt normal, but then you were surprised by, by what you felt after you, you know, received the after you jumped the fence as you say i wouldn't say that i felt normal i wouldn't say that in terms of the way i felt on the inside but i was treated in in a much more even keeled way by others i felt at peace with my body i don't advocate for weight loss i advocate for finding peace within your body and and i hope that people who pick up my book always too much and never enough are on their own quest toward personal authenticity. My story is a roundabout journey toward personal authenticity, which for me started when I learned the ways that I was being betrayed by the food industry and the way that food was being produced in such a way that was the exact right amount of fat to sweet to salty and being given the precisely perfect texture of smushy, really, mm-hmm. to go down my gullet at exactly the right speed and hit that part of my brain that made me want to go for more, more, more. That's one reason why it was always too much and never enough. But as I discovered the ways I was being betrayed by the food industry, I realized that there were so many ways I was also betraying myself. So ultimately, when I lost the weight, it wasn't about the numbers on the scale. For me, it was about becoming someone who is comfortable in my own skin and in this world. That does not mean that the next person would need to lose weight to make that happen. So at the bottom, the bottom line is authenticity then, and, and I guess someone could, could be fat and authentic. I, absolutely the bottom line is authenticity, and I, I'm not here to pass judgment on anybody else, no matter what their size or shape or, or insert the blank is. 
this is really my story and it's about what works for me. And the through line that I think will resonate with people is that I have heard, even since my book came out, that being always too much and never enough can apply universally. I've had a, a philanthropist tell me that when she thinks about the amount of money she gives to charities, it's always too much, and yet it's never enough because there's constantly puppies in shelters or, or children starving, and, and so it's also never enough. And for me, the through line for that was food and also my relationship to eating and to my body. The fact that I am who I am does not mean that someone else reading this needs to have the exact same story as mine. I don't think that people who read my book will necessarily find themselves on the path to losing weight. They might, if that's part of what they need to do to get to a place where they're in touch with who they really are. But that's not true for everyone. It was just true for me. I want to go back to that relationship with food. And uh, I think that will touch a chord with a lot of people. You know, you say comfort yeah. food is called comfort food for a reason. You you found comfort in, in food. Of course. It was my best friend. It was my therapist. At the end of the day of being bullied by the kids at school, it was always Oreos that were there for me or Cheez-Its or, or rows and rows of saltines. And it, it was not a relationship I was willing to give up anytime soon. It was, of course, all an illusion. I didn't put that together until many years later when I realized that the industry making that particular kind of food, which was really as far from health-promoting, nourishing food as you could possibly get. I never ate a vegetable, for example. I, I didn't realize that that was an industry that was reliant on my willful ignorance to continue to consume it as a way of really avoiding the searing reality around and inside me. And that was how I dealt with being a bullied kid and then a, a bullied young adult as well. I didn't, I, I grew up in the fluorescent 1980s when I, all I ate were those, those, those little Weight Watchers meals that were right. in those cardboard encasements, mm -hmm. you know? We, I don't even think we owned dishes in the 80s. If we did, we never used them because <laughs> right. we just microwaved those meals. They were always still frozen in the middle. And for vegetables, I would maybe have some buttered canned peas. I didn't eat a vegetable till I was 30. Yeah, uh, so part of it was the, I guess the healthy food wasn't all that appealing, at least in the way it was presented to you. Well, unfortunately, as I grew up as a chubby kid trying to squeeze myself into the shadow of my very thin and beautiful mother, who was very hell-bent on getting from, you know, 122 pounds to 120 pounds, and so food was not really a way of providing satisfaction or nourishment. It was more a, a means to losing weight. So that was how I looked at food for many, many years. Of course, when I got older, I saw it as not just a personal issue, but a very political one. In fact, I think food is the most personal political issue there is. And that was something that ultimately freed me. Hmm. I wonder, uh, I saw a blog post where you were, you were saying you're presenting your book to your mother. I knew, <laughs> mothers, and daughter, yeah. mothers and daughters are, can be great and it can be complicated. And your mother was apparently, she, you know, slim, but she was always trying to lose that last, you know, five pounds or whatever. Yes. And I've had a lot of people read the book and say, I can relate to you and I can relate to your TM. And TM is what I call my thin mother in the book. And it's true. I was obviously terrified. You can't write a memoir that centers largely around food and body image without throwing your mother under the bus a little bit. <laughs> And I prepared her and prepared her, and I probably over-prepared her. But I have to say, ultimately, when she read the book, she realized that it was my story. She explained that hers might have been a little bit different, of course, because that's how it goes. That's, how, that's why it's called personal narrative. But she said, I, I think you need to tell your story, and I'm supportive of it. And plus, I called her beautiful a lot, so that didn't hurt. That's, that's good. So, so she, she, she at least accepted the book. She's, she's okay. She's, yeah, yeah, she's a, a cavelling mother. She's yeah. <laughs> very proud of it, and she's evolved too. We've all we've all evolved since a lot of the story takes place mm -hmm. as I was growing up, and she is definitely taking it like a champ. I can't imagine mm -hmm. anyone else really being so kind and generous as my mother has been in the process of this book coming out. 
So your mother, and there are some funny scenes, you know, funny slash uncomfortable. Your mother takes you to Weight Watchers. She takes, you know, she takes you along to these these places, and it's with her daughter. It's not working with her daughter. No. Well, I was trailing behind her, the chubby mm-hmm. kid playing Tetris, you know, and eating Cheez-Its. And it was, I always wondered how how the people in the rooms reacted to my mom, this completely stunning woman who would walk into the rooms and say, hi, I'm here to lose some weight, <laughs> and then kind of look behind her and see me standing there uncomfortably shifting my weight from left to right, because I was there knowing that on the way home we would stop for pizza, and that was what got me to go with her. Of course, when I was a teenager, I did ultimately join myself, and that began a very, very long process of trying out weight loss in a variety of mainstream ways. But that never addressed the systemic reason why I had such a disordered mentality around food consumption. So what was the point then where it, act, where it clicked? I, you know, and you've hit upon an important point. Uh, you, there has to be some part of yourself that, uh, where it clicks, right? Otherwise, whatever system you're working is not going to work. Well, that's true for any kind of addiction, whether it's food addiction or addiction to a person or addiction to alcohol or drugs. It's, it, it, it has to be addressed from yourself and from a true place, or at least that's how it was for me. I guess it's different for other people. But for me, the click that you just talked about was actually a series of clicks. And the very first one was when I was 19 and I became a vegetarian. And I did it because suddenly I didn't think of meat as food anymore. It was really the first time I had given any thought to where food was coming from. And I had a friend who was a vegetarian. It was the first vegetarian I ever met. So it was suddenly in my consciousness that that could be a choice that people make. But I went vegetarian. I later realized, only in retrospect, that that was kind of the first step in my reclaiming my body as myself and reclaiming my consumption habits as myself. It was many years before the ultimate click in that. But at the time, it was an important first step for me and a uh, absolutely important determining factor in who I would ultimately become. Mm-hmm. And you, you talk about the nobody thinks there's a fat vegan, but uh, there certainly does exist. You, Oreos are vegan after all, you, you say. Uh, tell me about that, because there is a stereotype. There. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, totally. It's, I think that it's starting to fade a little bit, but in, especially in more mainstream circles, People often associate vegans with just waif-like, yoga-loving, skinny people who just eat, like, some steamed kale once a day and call it a day. And that was not me. And, you know, I'm still vegan. I, I was, I've been vegan since I was 24. I'm 36 now. And I went vegan, and I did it because... I learned about the ways that animals were treated behind closed doors in absolutely horrific ways that I had never before given any thought to. That was a a huge step for me, both personally and in terms of making my worldview become part of my everyday life. For me, it was something that allowed me to live in what matched up with my ethical beliefs. But what I had done in terms of my consumption was replace a lifetime of... uh, an imbalanced view of eating and food and consumption with the vegan version of it. And here's the silver lining to that. There is literally a vegan version of every single kind of animal product out there. So I was working long, hard days as an activist, and I was I live in New York City, and I was so excited that there was this amazing vegan pizza on the Upper West Side and this fantastic Butterfinger shake in Williamsburg, Brooklyn, and this outstanding standing cupcake that could not be missed in Soho. And I felt like it was my duty to try them all because after all, it was for the animals. <laughs> but what I didn't totally realize was that I couldn't be advocating for animals if I wasn't also advocating for myself. And I did put on a lot of weight when I went vegan, mainly because all I ate was processed foods and never ate a vegetable, as I said. And when I was 30, I was told I was on my way to heart disease. So that was when things changed. Let's take a break. When we come back, more with Jasmine Singer. Her memoir is called Always Too Much and Never Enough. 
And Jasmine Singer will be uh, doing a couple of events in Utah coming up on March 11th at 5.30 p.m. She'll be doing a reading and book discussion at Art Access in Salt Lake City. By the way, later in this program, we'll be uh, hearing from a couple of representatives along with Jasmine Singer from Art Access uh, on March 12th, 7 p.m. at Weller Bookworks in Salt Lake City. Uh, it's an event called Dual Memoirist Duel. Josh Hanagarney, whose book is The World's Strongest Librarian, and Jasmine Singer. So those are events where you can interact with uh, Jasmine Singer. Her website is jasminesinger.com. More following the break. This is Management Minute by Professor Scott Hammond. Whether you pick the Western New Year, the Chinese New Year, or any other time to make New Year's resolutions, you're probably wasting your time. Research shows annual resolutions do little to move the improvement needle. So what do you do? Whether on a personal level or with a global company, continuous improvement is the answer. Goals are important. Ideals are good. But continually raising standards to new levels leads to unimaginable excellence. Commercial aviation safety, automobile quality, medicine are all fields instant, not annual improvement has created excellent results. The Management Minute is brought to you by our members and the USU Shingo MBA program at the John M. Huntsman School of Business, a 15-month graduate degree for executives giving knowledge and skills to leverage the principles and tools of lean continuous improvement. Huntsman.usu.edu. Thanks for joining me for Access U Time. Tom Williams, my guest for the hour, is Jasmine Singer. Her uh, memoir is Always Too Much and Never Enough. And uh, she is coming to Utah. She'll do a reading and book discussion at Art Access. It's part of their Body Image Project. Uh, and uh, that is March 11th, 5.30 p.m. And then on March 12th, 7 p.m., uh, Jasmine Singer will be at an event with Josh Hanagarney, whose book is The World's Strongest Librarian. You can find our discussion with Josh Hanagarney on our website, upr.org. Jasmine Singer's website is jasminesinger.com. And uh, we uh, have her for the rest of the hour. We'll be bringing on uh, representatives from Art Access uh, in just about five minutes or so. Uh, Jasmine Singer, I want to talk about the fat stigma. Uh, Stigma, you know, fat people. um, It's... I realize this happens to quite a few people, more than we'd probably like to recognize but but reading about your childhood is, is some of these things are heartbreaking you you ate lunch by yourself in a bathroom stall to avoid your bullies uh sat alone on the bus trip because quote unquote the fat might be contagious kids actually said that to you oh yeah i wonder if it's different now i, I tend to think that there is more awareness now this was the 80s but even though there's more awareness now i think it's still it's still pretty rough out there it's tough to be a kid and it was really hard for me to just be a person that was decided for some reason that I didn't understand and still don't totally understand that, that I was going to be at the bottom of the totem pole. And, of course, ultimately that led me to who I am today. But at the time, it was, it was rough because the teachers ignored it. And nobody really knew what to do with a kid like me. And then you talk about a, your daily walk of shame. You, you drink... Uh... I guess, uh, Cokes, then that would lead you have to go to the bathroom, but that you'd have to, you know, go in front of the whole class to do that, uh, to get out of the room, right? Yeah, of course. Well, to get, yeah, to get the key, yeah. yeah. So there was the eight seconds of, I knew it was eight seconds, because I timed it every time, in walking to the front of the classroom to get the key. And it, it's a rough moment, you know, because you hold it as long as you possibly can. And then suddenly you get up and you walk to the front of the room and people are flinging insults at you because, that's the interesting thing to do, and that's the sort of fun thing to do. It was, it was really hard, and it was hard to remember all of this. I had so many journals that I wrote when I was a kid, and so I was able to read, read them and reread them while I was writing Always Too Much and Never Enough. So you uh, you turned to heavy eyeliner. Uh, there's some pictures on your website. <laughs> you got that heavy eyeliner. Liza Minnelli's picture on the, on the mirror. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I've been, for a long time, people used to say, who do you look like, Liza Minnelli? Oh, right. (laughs) I tried to distract people from the rest of me with my eye makeup. (laughs) And it's possible that there's still truth to that. 
I admit, I, I, I feel like if there was a fire, I would make sure my dog was safe, and then I would grab my eyeliner. And my partner, of course. <laughs> but uh, did you see that the eyeliner just came before my partner in that sentence? Yeah. <laughs> uh, but, yeah, no, I'm going to get in trouble later. But the, I, I always was very into style and just kind of wearing whatever I could, being as quirky as possible, partly because it was how I was expressing myself, but partly because I, I was trying to distract anyone, you know, from from seeing who I really was. And part of that distraction was... was through eating and through only allowing people to see the part of me that I thought that they were predisposed to seeing. I had a really uh, uncomfortable, to say the least, experience when I was directing a play at a day camp. This is something I talk about in my book, and it, it led to bullying like I'd never seen it before. I was in my early 20s at the time. And ultimately, I stopped eating that summer completely. So my book is not just about overconsumption, but it's about trying to figure out my way through the ins and outs of managing this toxic relationship I had with eating and ultimately realizing that it was animal rights activism and self-care, most primarily, that allowed me to have a healthy balance. Where does the animal rights activism fit in? Did, did, did something click that you were trying to take care of the animals, but you weren't taking care of yourself? What, what, where's, where's the connection there? Yeah, absolutely. You just said it. You just hit the nail on the head. For a really long time, I was an animal rights activist. I am an animal rights activist, but right now I, I pay attention to my own animal rights. Whereas before, I was just so busy fighting for the rights of others that I was completely neglecting myself in the process. Unfortunately, I think that that's common with a lot of activists, whether they're animal rights activists or not, or just caregivers or service workers in general who put themselves last. And I learned the hard way by being really sick at at 30 years old that if I didn't do something now, I was not going to have any kind of a, a vibrant future. So... I took all of the tenets of my activism and I applied them to myself, too. And I started to consume a diet based in whole foods, actually consuming vegetables for the first time, and with regular juice fasting. And that juice fasting allowed me to take a break from just running to Oreos and and you name it, instead of looking at the reasons why... I had that compulsion in the first place. That compulsion was partially based in the fact that food, processed food, is often created in such a way to make it addictive. And it was partially based in the leftover pieces of my childhood that I had never quite confronted. You, uh, you've been successful with juice fasts. Tell me about that. I, uh, yes, I have been. Uh, juice fasting has been an important part of my own personal story. And as I say in the book, I don't think that juice fasting is necessarily for everybody, but it's something that really worked for me. It was a, a documentary called Fat, Sick, and Nearly Dead that opened my eyes to the possibility of juice fasting. And that documentary followed a man who went on a juice fast for 30 days as an effort to heal himself of a lot of painful ailments and, and diseases, and he did. I was given an advanced copy of that movie for, from a magazine that I, I write for, Veg News, and I uh, watched it, and I just, it, this was right after I had been told that my triglycerides were extremely high, and I was suffering a lot physically. I couldn't go up a flight of stairs without feeling very winded. I had adult-onset acne. I had a lot of depression, and yet I was vegan, and I knew about health because I got my master's in it, (laughs) and I was so not feeling well. So I decided, okay, well, this is the moment. So I tried a juice fast for 10 days, and it worked. It, it, It made me look at, for the first time, look at the reasons why I was such a compulsive eater, and it allowed me the break from consumption that I personally needed in order to get to the place where I was craving healthy food. And nowadays, I do incorporate juice fasting regularly, but for the most part, I consume vegetables, uh, food in, in its purest forms. So a lot of beans and seeds and whole grains and uh, vegetables, of course, and fruits and healthy fats like 
you know, nuts and seeds and avocados, and and that's most of what I consume. But I leave room for trying the incredible vegan food that's out there more and more these days. I'm really looking forward to Salt Lake City because there are so many vegan options out there. I know that I'm going to be visiting Vertical Diner, which I'm really excited about, and I have a whole list of places that I want to try. So as long as I keep balance to some level, I, I don't feel like I'm going to go down that road again of being unable to stop. Uh, um, we, we've uh, talked about uh, vegetarianism, veganism, uh, you know, a few uh, programs, uh, and uh, it often comes back to culture clash, and especially within a family. And I think uh, you have such in your family. You, you do say that your mother has gone vegan, and that's made holidays a lot maybe easier, and the food's gotten better, but your, your brother still eats meat? <laughs> my poor brother. Yeah, he is pretty much the lone meat eater in my family, and he lives out in Kansas. And when I go to visit him, I open the refrigerator, and they have lots of vegan options in there. So even though he himself is not vegan, I know he has really come around and I would say he's much, much more vegan than he has been in the past, which is an important point to make because if somebody doesn't want to go vegan or they're afraid of the permanence of the word or they're afraid it's too quote unquote radical or extreme or they really love their mother's meatloaf on Christmas, to that I say the more we can do to take animal products off of our plate, the better it is for animals and for the environment and for our own health. So if someone is not ready to go vegan completely, I think that there are a lot of places where we could just bend in ways that work for us in the meantime. And for me, it was just part of who I wanted to be. It, it matched my ethical my ethical outlook, but my ethical outlook is not going to be the same as yours or as the next person. So I say we should all do what we can do in a way that works for us. And when I learned about the suffering of animals behind closed doors, there was just no question, especially when I realized how accessible and delicious vegan food is these days. Mm. I want to uh, to move to animal activism, uh, treat that at the end of this segment, and then we're going to go to the next segment and bring on uh, representatives from Art Access to, to join us along with Jasmine Singer. Uh, this is in Chapter 12 of, of the book. The book is Always Too Much and Never Enough, and the author is Jasmine Singer, my guest for the hour here. Um, and, and you recount a, an experience where you, did, you were doing some work for PETA, so you went to, went to the PETA offices, you are watching the videos, you know, horrible things, uh, chemicals being tested on animals, and you're, you're tearing up, and then you stand up to look into the next cubicle. I wonder if you could tell me about that. And th- this goes to... Uh, fighting for a cause, and I, I guess being emotionally invested in the cause, but but you but you have to hold yourself together to be able to fight for the cause. Yeah, the story you're telling was immediately after I went vegan. I was 24, and I went down to PETA for a week in Norfolk, Virginia. And so oftentimes when people first discover, especially the atrocities going on with dairy cows and egg-laying hens, I think that there's some level of how could I not have known. And and there's frequently a really strong desire to do something about it, again, in a way that works for them. And so I went down to PETA, and it's a very corporate feel down there, except for there's dogs and cats running around. So that's the big difference, (laughs) I think, between being in other other corporate uh, situations. And I was just devastated. I couldn't believe what I was seeing. And yet everyone else seemed to be doing their work. And I later learned it's not that they were unflappable. It's just that you get to a place where you have to protect yourself and exist in the world. You know, you can't be traumatized every time you pass a hot dog stand and stand there and cry. Of course, I have my moments because it's really horrible what goes on for animals. But ultimately, and I've been vegan now for almost 13 years, I have learned that there is a lot of reasons to hope. And there are a lot of small victories going on for animals that that give me a reason to continue. At the moment, I was just traumatized, but I got past it. And hmm. there, are, there are more and more vegan options. There's more and more enlightenment and awareness about alternatives to animal products. There are undercover investigations, uh, thanks to animal rights organizations, such as Mercy for Animals. There are alternatives to animal products in ways that I think will change the world coming up and just in the future um, through companies such as Hampton Creek Foods that 
produce plant-based versions of animal products. And so I have so much reason to hope. The amount of vegans out there has has grown significantly since I first went vegan. But beyond that, there's people like my brother, who you open the refrigerator and it's just a, a bountiful amount of vegetable uh, vegetables and uh, the vegan meat alternatives and just mayo, which is a vegan mayonnaise and and so I have reasons to hope I don't feel traumatized anymore. And you, uh, part of your activism here is is, uh, is, is podcast, right? Our Hen House. Which, right. Which you uh, yeah. do, do with Our you. Hen House is the podcast that I've been doing for, I'm in my seventh year of it. So we have 322 episodes. And I also have the Teaching Jasmine How to Cook Vegan podcast, which anyone who's interested in just sort of exploring vegan food, even if you don't want to jump in completely yet, would like the Teaching Jasmine How to Cook Vegan podcast. The Our Hen House podcast allows us to interview celebrities and lawyers and artists and grassroots advocates, everyone who's working to change the world for animals, including in the companion animal realm. And my partner, Marianne, teaches animal law at Columbia University. So Marianne has the Animal Law Podcast, which is also absolutely brilliant and fascinating. Let's take a break. When we come back, more with Jasmine Singer. The book is Always Too Much and Never Enough. And uh, following the break, we will be uh, bringing on representatives from Art Access in uh, Salt Lake City. Um, And uh, just to... Uh, tell you again, uh, Jasmine Singer uh, will be at a reading and book discussion at Art, Art Access in Salt Lake City on March 11th, 5.30 p.m. And then there's an event at Weller Bookworks, March 12th, 7 p.m. More following the break. Hi, this is Robert Siegel of NPR's All Things Considered, your evening news destination. You know, events unfold throughout the day between morning edition and All Things Considered. So tune in for Here and Now with Jeremy Hobson and Robin Young. It's in-depth news, analysis, and extraordinary stories that you won't hear anywhere else. Join us weekday mornings at 11 on Utah Public Radio. UPR members are the backbone of what you hear on Utah Public Radio. Their financial contributions support and help create every single word, every note of music, and every bit of knowledge and emotion that emanates through the radio. Thank you to the UPR listeners who financially strengthen the station through their UPR membership. You too can join the ranks of these steadfast UPR members. It's not too late to contribute. Just go to upr.org. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. We're talking about a memoir, Always Too Much and Never Enough. The author is Jasmine Singer. We have her for the rest of the hour, and we bring on now representatives from Art Access in Salt Lake City. That's where Jasmine Singer will be doing a reading and book discussion on March 11th, 5.30 p.m. There's also an event at Weller Bookworks, 7 p.m. on March 12th. And we bring on now uh, Cheryl Gilliland, Executive Director of Art Access. Welcome to the program. Thank you. Welcome to you, too, and inviting us to be interviewed. Thank you. And we bring on Elise Butterfield, Programs Administrator for Art Access. Thank you for joining us. Hi. Thank you for having us. Pleasure to be here. So, uh, Cheryl Gittleland, in brief, what is Art Access? What do you do there? Art Access is a nonprofit arts organization. We've been in business over 30 years, and our goal is to provide arts opportunities to everyone. So we specifically seek out those people who have been disenfranchised in society and want to hear their stories through art. So we reach out to people with disabilities, refugees, homeless, elderly, anybody who feels like they don't have access to mainstream arts organizations, (laughs) that we serve everyone because we, our goal is to share the stories of all of us so that we can all become more empathetic and open to other people's stories. Lisa Butterfield, uh, you have a body image project. I think that's uh, un- under that umbrella is uh, Jasmine Singer's going to be appearing. What, what's the body image project, project? That's correct. Yeah, so the body image project kind of came about through conversations just with staff about how we feel about our, our own bodies and, and stories we've heard from other people about the things that they think or have experienced. Um, and so we created this project that really um, 
starts the conversation about some of the messages that we've internalized about ourselves and, and what it means to look a certain way um, through a variety of mediums. So we've got Jasmine's event happening this week, and then we'll also have two different book group discussions um, about body image on, on two different books, a writing workshop, a gallery exhibit, and then a panel discussion uh, mid-April. Uh, Jasmine Singer, the, this issue of body image, uh, Lisa Butterfield said something very interesting there. I want to follow up on that. Uh, the the messages that we internalize. Of course, there's a lot of messages out there in the media, and, and you know the those subtle messages that you get when you're overweight, uh, and I guess some of those get internalized, or and part of it's your own internal dialogue that's going on. I wonder if you could talk about that. Those messages that we internalize. I think that's something that starts when we're kids. It's the messages that we internalize based on our family and our surroundings. And it's also messages that are being screamed at us by the mainstream media. And, of course, anybody listening to this would would know that the mainstream media is screaming that we, especially women, have to be thin. Uh, Jasmine Jasmine Singer, your your phone is breaking up a little bit. I don't know if you could reposition it or if that'll work. Okay. Sorry about that. That's sounding better, yeah. Okay, I was saying that it, it's being screamed at us, especially women, that we have to be thin and we have to fit some kind of uh, image of, of what is considered beautiful. And what I found in my story, which is something that I'll talk about at the Art Access event, is that ultimately the only thing that made me feel beautiful was when I found peace within my body. And that was accomplished only after I realized that my body did not belong to the bullies or to the men who had violated me along the way. It was something that ultimately brought me back to my body. I actually uh, found that decorating myself with more than just eyeliner, but with getting tattoos was an important part of that process for me. And uh, actually having a tangible proof that my body was my own. It was a very liberating process, but it, it, it didn't come without its share of bruises along the way. I was going to ask you about your tattoos. So it, that was part of your process of, I guess, owning your own story. For me, it was. And again, this is my story. And I don't think that I'm not necessarily saying everybody should go out and get tattoos. But if you want to, that's cool. <laughs> I, for me, it, it was a very real and tangible way that I was able to blend back my psyche with my body. I had previously always thought they were separate. When people made fun of me, I would think, well, they're making fun of my body, but that's not me. That's not who I am. And the first time I got a tattoo on my 18th birthday, it was it was proof that I had control over my body. And ultimately, throughout the years, as I get more, it's just a way of my expressing myself through uh, my through my skin and and what I want to put out there on a very a very tangible way. So it, it it was a way of coming home to myself when for so many years I hated the vessel that I had been given. I didn't feel it was my own. Uh, just briefly, I want to ask you about your hair. Uh, am I reading this correctly on your website? You. <laughs> Because you, uh, your official photo nowadays has very short hair, but uh, but you're I guess you're growing it out a bit. This is a result of a, a, yeah, a dye job gone wrong. <laughs> I had a bad dye job last year, so I shaved my head after that happened. But you know, there's something to shaving your head that's like, oh, okay, well, I guess I'll be this person now. And it's funny how how that even just your hair can influence your identity and your self identity, but. Yeah, I, I I like to play around with with things that that I can play around with physically, and hair is definitely one of those things. It's funny that you're asking me about it because I never stop talking about my hair. I'm like always <laughs> wanting to just do something different and Ch- see if that will change how I feel about myself or mm-hmm. how the world feels about me. Yeah, uh, let me turn back to Cheryl Gilliland, executive director of Art Access. Um, so. A lot of, I guess, marginalized people you're, you're trying to bring in, um, and I guess art art can help them see themselves in a in a way to improve how they see themselves. Yes, Jasmine is actually speaking to exactly what we do, which is we 
examine if you don't look like society thinks you should look, or you don't act like society thinks you should act, what does that mean about who you are, and where is your place in society? And frequently those people are bullied because they don't look like the dorm. So we use art as a way of self-expression, as a way of telling your story through art, and also of hearing other people's stories through art, because stories validate who you are. Jasmine's book is a story about who she is, and it validates her. And we do the same thing through visual art, performing art, and literary arts at Art Access. And we'll just uh, come down to the end of the program, but we'll uh, get a brief comment here from Elise Butterfield, and then we'll end with Jasmine, the singer. Elise Butterfield, what, what, give us a range of, of the types of projects that, that, that you do, where you're trying to bring people in. Yeah, um, we serve, as Cheryl said, many different kinds of people, but sort of the through line is that we, we really want to be inclusive to everybody. Um, so this body image project is one of our... Um, two kind of annual projects. We do two different annual projects each year, sometimes one, sometimes three. Um, And then we have ongoing workshops, um, ongoing residency projects, and ongoing partnerships in the community to serve people in other ways. And I would encourage anybody who's interested um, to go ahead and check out our website. It's we we really our goal is to have a way for each person to connect in a way that feels meaningful to them because as Jasmine is talking about you know the, even just this issue of body image affects each of us in a different way um, and some people will feel comfortable going to a reading or going to a book group and others might feel more comfortable doing a visual art workshop or, or just coming to see a gallery exhibit. So I'd encourage um, folks to check out our website at accessart.org. Accessart.org. Very good. And we'll give the final word to, to Jasmine Singer. Just a, a minute. What, what do you, what do you hope people, what do you most hope people take away from your story? I hope that my journey is one that can inform it or potentially influence somebody else's journey. I I think that anybody who is interested in becoming a more authentic version of who they are would find something in my book. And I I have been really humbled along the way to learn about how many people say that this speaks to them on a deeply personal level. I, I think that we can all relate to being always too much and never enough. And I hope that people pick up my book because they want to find a place where they might be able to fit in better within themselves. The book is Always Too Much and Never Enough. The author is Jasmine Singer, and her website is jasminesinger.com. We've been speaking with representatives from Art Access, their website, accessart.org. And uh, Jasmine Singer will be doing a reading and book discussion on March 11th at Art Access in Salt Lake City. That's at 5.30 p.m., then on March 12th at 7 p.m. at Weller Bookworks, uh, Jasmine Singer along with Josh Hanagarni. Um, and uh, so we, we thank everyone, Jasmine Singer and Elise Butterfield and uh, Cheryl Gilliland. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And uh, hope you join us tomorrow. We have a Pulitzer Prize winning reporter, uh, Charles Duhigg. He was out with a New York Times bestseller uh, a while ago, The Power of Habit. Very interesting story. He's out with a sequel, Smarter, Faster, Better, The Secrets of Being Productive in Life and Business. Uh, Charles Duhigg joins me uh, for the program tomorrow. Hope you'll be with me then. Thanks for listening today. Commentator Gina Wickwar. Isabella II, a small ship, was my home for a week while a group of us explored the eastern five of the Big 15 Galapagos Islands. We totaled 40, 22 of our Harvard science group, three families from other countries, and 10 crew members. After flying into Santa Cruz and frolicking with the Galapagos giant tortoises, we jumped aboard Zodiacs that would carry us to our ship. Not a half mile from shore, we closed in on a small rocky outcrop that was
was covered with birds, sea lions, crabs, and iguanas. We ogled them and photographed them, gasping with joy and delight that these creatures just sat there and ogled us back, clearly curious to see other creatures who were bouncing about in a rubber dinghy with life vests, sunglasses, and cameras attached to their bodies. We continued our rolling ride and reached the Isabel, too. As I said, she was to be our home for the next week, but we played outdoors during all the daylight hours, which, on the equator, were considerable. We dropped anchor about a mile from shore, jump into zodiacs with our life vests on, and hurtle through the sea to make wet landings on the various beaches. A wet landing, I learned, was jumping out of the zodiac into surf water and wading ashore. We'd go back to the Isabella, too, in reverse order. I always thought I'd like to be a naturalist. Oh, I know a few birds, and I can recognize a hawk from a finch or a sea lion from a lion, but I did so wish I knew more. Well, a week tromping the beaches and cliffs and trails of the islands and sailing into coves and near lava thrust-ups certainly added to my meager knowledge. You all have heard of the mask boobies, those blue and red-footed avian marvels whose home is the Galapagos. Oddly, the red-footed booby has a blue beak and mask, but fortunately for us amateurs, so does the blue-footed booby. Boobies are everywhere, but they actually have the smallest population of any kind of bird species on the islands. They often live side by side with the Galapagos albatross and the Nazca booby, whose white plumage and black feet are very unbooby-like. You'd think all these critters would crowd out the other animals, but they don't. Frigates are always nearby, ready to soar up 1,500 feet before hurtling straight down to capture an unsuspecting fish. On the rocky island outcrops and lava beach rocks are the orange and green marine iguanas, the scampering black baby crabs, the bright red adult crabs, and the amazingly cute and sweet sea lions. Sea lions are also everywhere, lolling on rocks to feel sea spray, rolling in sand to cover their backs with sunscreen, nursing their pups who suckle noisily, galumphing to the edge of rocks to slither into the sea and waddling across beaches to meet the surf. They take no notice of you as you peer at them from only a foot away with your iPhone. The males stand by, their whitish whiskers thick and long, their bark sounding like hounds after the fox. We all got pretty good at the bark, as we practice it daily. Then there are the large sea turtles who slowly inch toward the surf before slipping into the sea. The albatross are harder to see since they spend so much time in the air, but their wingspan of eight feet shows up easily against the sunlit sky. Darwin's finches rule the roost, as they say. These were his best showcase of natural selection in his masterpiece on the origin of species, and I learned to distinguish the beak size and shape on the ones I saw. And I even could tell that the pink thingies standing one-legged in the backwaters were flamingos. With their skinny legs and long, rubbery necks, they were as curious as the Queen of Hearts croquet mallets. Next time, it'll all be about our group leader's lectures on Darwin, our naturalist salty history of the islands, and the amazing camaraderie we felt as we learned. This is Gina Wickwar. If you want to be in the big leagues, remember it's all about the attitude. There is no soloist or conductor in the world that doesn't want to appear on the stage of Walt Disney Concert Hall and conduct the Los Angeles Philharmonic. I'm Kai Rizdal, a trip to Disney Hall and the CEO of the L.A. Phil next time on Marketplace. Join us tonight at 6.30 on Utah Public Radio. This is Utah Public Radio, KUSR HD1 Logan, KUSK HD1 Vernal, KUSL HD1 Richfield, KUST HD1 Moab, KCEU Price, and KUSU FM HD1 Logan. A service of the College of Humanities and Social Sciences at Utah State University. Time now, 10 o'clock.